The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we're going to discuss the Antichrist. First, we're going to dive into a treatise written in the 10th century that details the Antichrist's entire life. It was a seminal work, and though short, it's packed with information taking from scripture, of course, but also from many other works written by philosophers and theologians in previous centuries. Second, we're going to spend a little time on eschatology, specifically at the various lenses of interpretation comprised by it, and how one of them, futurism, is in large part the reason the Antichrist remained so relevant for so long, as people would attempt to prognosticate when he would return or would weaponize the name labeling people they disliked or disagreed with it, much as women were called witches. Third, we're going to look at a second century work that features the Antichrist throughout, our purpose here being to show one of the first steps in the progression that would culminate in more elaborate writings of the Middle Ages that centered on the Antichrist. And finally, we're going to the source itself, scripture, namely the Epistles of John, the second epistle to the Thessalonians, and, of course, the book of Revelation, which details the apocalypse of the Christian Bible. Let's get into it. The Antichrist, as conceptualized as the son of the devil and the arch-enemy of Jesus, has remained such a prominent figure today in large part because of the many texts that discuss him, that supplement what's written in the Bible with additional insight and explanation, written by philosophers and theologians over the last 2,000 years. In the 10th century, Adso of montier en der a monk and abbot, wrote a treatise about the Antichrist in a letter he sent to Queen Gerbera of France. It became the standard medieval reference work on the Antichrist, and it's the perfect work to explore in this video because it covers the Antichrist's entire life, drawing on a number of other works, scripture of course, but also other exegesis still extant from centuries past. For the next while, we're going to focus on what this treatise has to say. The Antichrist will be the antithesis of Christ, diametrically opposed in every way. Every detail, every aspect, every action, every motivation, absolutely contrary. Effectively, the two form an intricate and elaborate dichotomy in which each is the opposite reflection of the other. Where Christ is humble, the Antichrist will be proud. Where Christ champions the lowly and judges sinners, the Antichrist will persecute the lowly and exalt sinners. Christ is the incarnation of virtue, and the Antichrist will be the incarnation of vice, something he will blight the masses with, a sickness of the mind that spreads like the plague. His coming will destroy the law of the gospel and drive people to worship demons, and he will seek to glorify himself as only God should be. In the time of his rule, he will endeavor wielding every wickedness at his disposal, to destroy the human race. But ultimately, though his evil will be great, he will not survive the last judgment, destroyed by Christ. The author goes on to claim that none of what he's written is a product of his imagination, but rather the distillation of his efforts, the culmination of diligent work and careful research of old sources, sifting and compiling information about the Antichrist from them. He continues, the Antichrist will be born from the tribe of Dan, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, 
as opposed to Jesus, who was born from the tribe of Judah. Dan is like a snake by the roadside, an adder on the path. And like that adder, he, the Antichrist, will be a serpent that sinks its fangs into and poisons those who walk the righteous path. As Jesus was born of immaculate conception, his mother impregnated by the Spirit of God, this dark doppelganger will be born like other men, from sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. Yet his beginning will also not be like that of other men, for the womb that harbors his malignant growth will be like a capsule containing shadow and sin, utterly suffused by the devil's own perverted potency. Inside he will be imbued with the devil's strength and cunning, just as the Holy Spirit entered the Virgin Mary and filled Jesus with his strength and righteousness. The devil's essence will permeate the mother, and through her, the child will be like a sponge inside, absorbing the fetid filth, the very tar of hell, becoming more a spawn of the great adversary than he ever was a son of mortal parents, ruined, rotten, and repulsive in every way, every fiber. He will be called the son of destruction, for his time on earth will see him endeavor to put an end to the human race. Here's a passage from an English translation of the letter. Now you have heard about the manner of his birth, hear also the place where he is to be born. For just as our Lord and Savior preordained Bethlehem for himself, the place where he put on humanity for us and deigned to be born, so the devil knows a fit place for this man of perdition called Antichrist. Whence it is fitting that all evil will arise, namely the city of Babylon. For in this community, which was once a famous and proud city of the heathen and the capital of the kingdom of the Persians, Antichrist will be born. It is said that he will be brought up and live in the towns of Bethsaida and Chorazane. For the Lord condemned these towns in the gospel with the words, Woe to thee, Chorazane! Woe to thee, Bethsaida! Antichrist will have magicians, criminals, soothsayers, and wizards who, with the devil's inspiration, will bring him up and instruct him in every iniquity, trickery, and wicked art. And evil spirits will be his leaders and eternal friends and inseparable comrades. Then he will come to Jerusalem, and all the Christians whom he cannot convert to his side he will kill by various torments, and he will place his own throne in the holy temple. He will restore the temple, now in ruins, which Solomon built to God, into its original form and will circumcise himself and give out the lie that he is the son of the Almighty God. First kings and princes will be converted by him, dragged into the filth of unholy worship. Then with the elite as thralls, the rest he will claim. After desecrating and destroying all of Christendom, tainting everything holy, he will send forth his dark disciples to the far corners of the world. Everywhere, from sea to sea, to the farthest reach of each cardinal direction, his will shall spread. To crystallize his position, he will win the minds of men with miracles, raining fire from the sky, causing plants and trees to bloom or wither, enraging or calming the seas, redirecting rivers, transforming objects, and unleashing storms into the firmament so that gales rip and lightning flashes split the sky. His miracles, to all but the most righteous and resilient, will be undeniable and irresistible, for even the dead, in the sight of men, will he again imbue with life. Fear, gifts, and miracles will be his weapons of corruption, 
and with them he will subvert Christianity and subdue all but those who cling to God as a man clings to a cliff's edge for dear life. With gifts he will buy people, showering silver and gold. Those who cannot be bought will be coerced by fear. Those too stalwart to be cowed will be won over by miracles. And finally, those whom neither gifts nor fear nor miracles corrupt will be subject to torture and death. When this happens, to flee will be the only option available for true Christians, finding shelter in the mountains. They will cry out to God, begging for salvation, but he will not come, not yet, and those who are caught will fall prey to every manner of pain and perversion, swords and fire and snakes and feral beasts. For three and a half years this hell will exist on earth, but after that time will be the second coming of Jesus, and with the power of his breath, the Son will destroy the Antichrist. Here's another passage from the English translation. Antichrist will not come into the world unless the apostasy comes first, that is, unless first all the kingdoms which long ago were subject to the Roman Empire secede from it. This time, however, is not yet come, because even though we see that the empire of the Romans is for the most part destroyed, nevertheless, as long as the kings of the Franks, who possess the Roman Empire by right, survive, the dignity of the Roman Empire will not perish altogether because it will endure in the French kings. Indeed, certain of our learned men tell us that one of the kings of the Franks, who will come very soon, will possess the Roman Empire in its entirety, and he will be the greatest and last of all kings. He, after governing his kingdom prosperously, will ultimately come to Jerusalem and lay down his scepter and crown on Mount Olivet. This will be the end and the consummation of the empire of the Romans and the Christians. And immediately, according to the aforesaid opinion of the Apostle Paul, they say that Antichrist will soon be at hand, and then will be revealed indeed, the champion of wickedness. Antichrist who, though he be a man, nevertheless will be the source of all sins, and the son of perdition, that is, the son of the devil, not through nature, but through imitation, because he will carry out the devil's will in all things, because the fullness of diabolical power and of depraved nature will dwell bodily in him, where there will be hidden away all the treasures of malice and iniquity. The Antichrist, the great rebel, will ascend in pride, placing himself above the myriad false gods of heathens and heretics. Hercules, Apollo, Jupiter, Mercury, pagan gods such as these will be mere trifles, paltry powers, compared to the Antichrist when his blasphemy comes to bear on the world, corrupting minds and hearts, leading people astray from the righteous path so that they become lost souls severed from the grace of God. What's more, not only will these pagan relics pale in comparison to him, but the Holy Trinity also will he subvert, seating himself on a throne of sin and sacrilege, above what nothing can truly be above, the glory of God. People will flock to him, thinking him the incarnation of salvation, but really they will unwittingly open their arms wide, their defenses dismantled, and embrace evil in its most insidious form. Born in Babylon, he will come to Jerusalem and circumcise himself, cutting away skin so that he may claim the skin of another. To the Jews, he will proclaim himself as Jesus in the flesh, once again walking the earth in the second coming that was promised. At least, that's how it will appear, however, in point of fact, 
the Antichrist will usher in a period utterly opposite to Jesus' second coming. After the world has been tortured and tormented by the Antichrist for three and a half years, after the prophets Elijah and Enoch return to the earth to help humanity and are then killed, after the Christians who resisted the tyranny of the Antichrist are crowned with martyrdom, God will no longer hold back, unleashing his final judgement on all of creation. With the breath of Jesus' mouth will the Antichrist be destroyed. It is said that the Antichrist will finally be destroyed atop Mount Olivet, where it was that Jesus ascended to heaven. That sums up what Anso of Montier-en-Der says in his treatise. Now, we're going to spend a little time looking at eschatology, which, as defined by Merriam-Webster, is a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or of humankind. To this branch of theology, insofar as it pertains to Christianity, the most important book of the Bible is the Book of Revelation, which details a cosmic conflict between good and evil, the second coming of Jesus, and the last judgement of God. Now, within eschatology, there are four subdivisions, four lenses through which events can be considered. These are Futurism, Preterism, Historicism, and Idealism. Each of these represents a distinct approach to interpreting events germane to eschatology. Futurism treats the events of Revelation as events that have not yet come to pass, meaning what is written will be fulfilled in the future. Preterists as biblical prophecies already fulfilled, historicists as events that symbolize other events that happened in world history, idealists as entirely symbolic and not illustrating any specific events that either have happened or will happen. Of these, futurism is certainly the most interesting when it comes to the Antichrist, because people who subscribe to futurism believe that the events comprised by the Book of Revelation are still to come, and because the Antichrist, though not explicitly named in the Book of Revelation, became identified with the beast in the Book of Revelation, this means that futurists believe either that the Antichrist was walking the earth in their time, or that he would walk the earth sometime in the future. This yielded two developments. First, thinking the Antichrist was going to be wreaking havoc on the earth at some point in the future must have contributed to preserving his prominence through the centuries to contemporary times. You need look no further than the treatise written to Queen Gerbera that we just went through. Second, it allowed for some wild accusations to be made. Just as women were accused of being witches, it wasn't uncommon for men, even very powerful men either in religious or secular institutions, to be accused of being the Antichrist by people who disliked or disagreed with them. These disparaging attacks were especially common in the Middle Ages, as the anti-papal emperor Frederick II, who ruled the Holy Roman Empire from 1212 to 1250, and Pope John XXII, who headed the church from 1316 to 1334, known for his harsh persecution of ecclesiastical dissidents, could attest, both of them accused of being the Antichrist. Later, while the term Antichrist continued to be used, it more so became weaponized against groups and institutions, rather than individuals. Like when Martin Luther, the German theologian who catalyzed the Protestant Reformation, accused the papacy of being the Antichrist, or when, responding in kind, the papacy then accused Martin Luther and his reformers of being the Antichrist. However, thinking of the Antichrist as a single, concentrated point of evil 
has remained popular within certain religious groups, such as fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Beyond these denominations, the conceptualization of the Antichrist as arch-evil has also endured through popular culture. If you've seen Donnie Darko, you've seen Jake Gyllenhaal call Patrick Swayze the Antichrist in front of the whole school. If you've seen or read Good Omens, written by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, you've seen the Antichrist resurrect the lost city of Atlantis from the sea, conjure UFOs, and manifest the rapid reforestation of the Amazon. If you've seen The Omen, you've seen the Antichrist terrorize a married couple that was manipulated into taking in the son of the devil and raising him as their own. And if you've seen Rosemary's Baby, you've seen a group of witches repeat God is dead over and over after the Antichrist is born. From here, we're going to transition to an early Christian work written by Saint Irenaeus, who was born to Greek parents in Asia Minor living to sometime between the year 200 and 203. As a boy, he heard and saw Saint Polycarp, at that time the last living connection to the Apostles. Irenaeus's most important work, Against Heresies, comprised five books and was written to refute Gnosticism, a term that now refers to various philosophical and religious movements in the early Christian era. Saint Irenaeus himself was an ardent supporter of Orthodox Christianity, so his writing was both sword and shield against religious offshoots, particularly those he believed were misinterpreting scripture and, thus, subverting the word of God. In Against Heresies, Saint Irenaeus discusses the Antichrist throughout. It can be seen that his conceptualization of the Antichrist is derived from four books of the Bible, the first and second epistles of John, the second epistle to the Thessalonians, and the book of Revelation. Instead of diving into the substance of Against Heresies, we're going to look at the biblical sources it synthesizes that are combined, coalescing into one of the first characterizations of the Antichrist to exist outside of scripture, and secondly, at how, by being one of the first exegesis to discuss the Antichrist, it became a seminal work that influenced later writers. The first written record of the term Antichrist appears in the New Testament, and because many of the books in the New Testament were first written in Greek, many religious terms in many languages are derived from their Greek counterparts. The term Antichrist derives from the Greek term Antichristos, and a similar term, false messiah, derives from the Greek term Pseudo-Christos. The term is used several times in the first epistle of John and one time in the second epistle of John. However, these passages don't give the impression of a single entity of evil, a polar opposite of Jesus bent on marring the world in the muck of sin. Rather, they seem to allude to a group of people, perhaps an especially egregious group of sinners, perhaps referring to heretics and apostates in general. Here are passages from the first epistle of John as they are presented in the King James Version of the Bible. 2.18-19 Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. 2.22 who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. 
4, 2-3 Hereby know, ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. And here is the passage from 2 John 1-7, again from the King James Version. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Having taken the name Antichrist from the epistles of John, Arrhenius goes on to connect it to other books in the Bible, namely the second epistle to the Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. There are two passages in the second epistle to the Thessalonians that allude to an entity of great evil. The term Antichrist isn't used, but there are several sinister appellations, like man of sin and son of perdition. Saint Irenaeus equates these appellations with the Antichrist, a name derived from the term used in the epistles of John. Here is the first passage. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And here is the second passage. For the master of iniquity doth already work, only he who would not letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. The evil figure alluded to in these two passages is commonly identified with the beast that features in the book of Revelation. Saint Irenaeus makes that connection, but instead of leaving the figure unnamed, addressed only by vague appellations like man of sin, son of perdition, and the beast, he excises all equivocalness by identifying this entity as the Antichrist. From here, we're going to dive into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the final book in the Christian Bible. Said succinctly, it's an apocalyptic narrative featuring the ultimate struggle between good and evil, a cataclysmic series of events leading to the final judgement, wherein Christians ascend to heaven and sinners are cast down to hell. We're going to skip past the first half or so of the book, picking up where the beast's reign begins. Here's the passage. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. 
And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of its heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. 666 After three and a half years of brutal and depraved tyranny, a period in which the face of the earth became like the pits of hell, it's time for God's final judgment. He serves up seven bowls of wrath, which are poured out onto the earth by seven plague-wielding angels. The great whore who drinks the blood of the righteous is struck down, and following these two events, Satan finds himself in God's crosshairs. The heavens open up, and from them, a white rider on a white horse emerges, all the armies of the light behind him. Galvanized by Satan, the earthly kings muster their forces, readying them for the imminent war against Jesus and his righteous host. However, the conclusion of this conflict was already decided long ago. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross guaranteed victory to heaven's champions and cohorts. Satan's forces are destroyed like shadows burned away by the rising sun, and the two beasts, one of the sea, the other of land, are cast into the lake of fire, symbolic of their subjection to God's eternal judgment. Satan is captured, wrapped in chains, and imprisoned for 1,000 years. Everyone who reigned true to God and died for their faith is resurrected, and they rule with Jesus over the redeemed earth, one now idyllic and paradisiacal, like a province of the blessed land above. After these 1,000 years, Satan is released. Even after all that transpired, there are still those weak of mind and heart who fall into temptation. Satan raises another army, but this time he is dealt with swiftly and without mercy. Fire rains from the heavens and destroys his forces, and Satan is taken, this time condemned to the lake of fire for all eternity. Now, let's wrap up the video by putting everything together. The term Antichrist is used in the epistles of John. Early religious writers connected the term Antichrist with the epithets man of sin and son of perdition, both of which feature in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, and with the epithet the beast which features in the book of Revelation. 
This gave rise to the notion of the Antichrist being the spawn of Satan, something that's reflected in early religious works like Saint Irenaeus's Against Heresies. These early works, in turn, served as the foundation for later writings discussing the Antichrist, like the treatise written by Anso of montier en der something we went over in great detail earlier on in the video. Tying into this is eschatology, especially futurism, which, when applied to the Book of Revelation, is a view that holds the coming of the Antichrist, the second coming of Jesus, and God's final judgment are series of events prophesied to happen sometime in the future. That people believe these events are prophesied to happen in the future certainly gave the Antichrist a greater degree of prominence over the last 2000 years, as people likely would have thought about him less were it universally believed that, in whatever form, the events of the Book of Revelation had already taken place. Another result of this view was that the term Antichrist became weaponized and used, much as the term witch became used against women to disparage and discredit men, often very powerful men, as well as institutions, whom other individuals or groups disliked or disagreed with. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like the video and subscribe to the channel. As always, leave your video suggestions down below.